What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens podcast. As always, I am your host, Zach Cronin, and I'm thrilled that you would choose to spend some time here with me today. We have a whole bunch of playoff basketball that I want to talk about. Uh, you know, let's just go ahead. Let's adjust the elephant in the room. Let's adjust the big fat fucking L that I took on the timeline on Maine in public last week when my very own Brooklyn Nets got swept by the Philadelphia 76ers. If you guys listened to the show last week, you know that I picked Brooklyn to upset Philadelphia only because of my biases towards them as a fan. I didn't think they were actually going to upset Philadelphia, but I went with them because I wanted to root for something. I didn't want to go into these games knowing that my team was going to get their asses beaten. My heart was telling me Brooklyn, even though my brain was telling me Philadelphia. However, I did not expect it to be a sweep. And admittedly, Brooklyn beat themselves up in this series. They did not really do anything miraculous on offense. Also, you know, credit to Philadelphia's defense in that regard as well particularly from the perimeter. Brooklyn has the third highest three-point attempt rating in these playoffs thus far and are among the worst shooting teams in the playoffs, which is not going to get you very far. So we're just going to go ahead. 45% of Brooklyn's shot attempts came from three. That is third, trailing only the Milwaukee Bucks and the Golden State Warriors. Now, Milwaukee is not performing that well in the playoffs thus far. We will get to that in a little bit. And Golden State is now potentially poised to advance beyond the first round with everything going on with Darren Fox's left index finger. We will get to that a little bit as well. Now, the one thing that is a little strange about, you know, Golden State in particular is that they are also not shooting that well from the perimeter. But mainly the big difference is that the Warriors have Steph Curry and the Brooklyn Nets do not. So that right there is a huge reason Brooklyn got their fucking asses beat in this series because they couldn't get anything going from the perimeter. And they were super reluctant to put the ball on the deck. And even Jacques Vaughn said, I think before game three, that, you know, Brooklyn did not have the personnel to get downhill, which, you know, I understand you don't have a, you don't really have a shot creator right now. You don't have a high level shot creator. I should say McCall Bridges, very much like Kevin Durant was not someone who was going to be able to put the ball on the deck and routinely get into the paint. Now, of course, that is more so because of his talent as a player, whereas with Kevin Durant, it was largely because of his age and his injury history. But like you don't have a Steph Curry, you don't have a LeBron James, you don't have a Jimmy Butler, you don't have a Jason Tatum, you don't have even like a Kyrie Irving or a Damian Lillard, guys who can pretty much just get to the basket at will and make things happen from there. And also the the sweep is even more disheartening because, you know, Phil uh Joel Embiid was in and out of the lineup. You know, James Harden was having to be the guy for Philadelphia a lot of the time. And not to say that he got bailed out by Tyrese Maxey because, you know, at this stage in Harden's career, I I think he understands that he is going to have to defer to somebody like Tyrese Maxey because that kid is fucking demonic, man. That kid is an absolute beast. I don't think that anybody is going to take that away from him. Tobias Harris played a fabulous series as well. I'm just going to go ahead and actually just pull up some of these numbers just so I can give everybody 
their due. I mean, there really wasn't a lot of points put up in this series. It was very reminiscent of an early 90s matchup between these two teams. Philly averaged 104 points tonight. Brooklyn at a piddling 92.5. A large reason was that they also did not have anybody off the bench who could do anything. I'm looking at Joe Harris. The guy shot 8% from three in this series. Jesus fucking Christ. Royce O'Neal, 18% from three. Cam Thomas didn't really play. Played 16 minutes. I mean, it was just it was just a mess. Seth Curry as well, 33% from three. Um, of course, Patty Mills, nowhere to be found as well because he basically fell out of the rotation. At He's basically fallen out of the rotation entirely. And yeah, it was just overall a very messy series from Brooklyn. And it was a defensive series, but, you know, as great as a defense as Brooklyn played, they gave up timely threes at the absolute worst times. They weren't able to capitalize on Joel Embiid not looking like himself. And ultimately, it was just a very forgettable series. But all things considered, this is this was, you know, the best case scenario for a team that probably should not have even qualified for a playoff berth after trading Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. This should have been a play-in team or a team who felt or a team who kind of went the way of the Dallas Mavericks. So, you know, as a fan, I'm over it already. Like, it, it stings, but, you know, this wasn't like they got swept by Boston last year when you had two superstars on this team. You got swept by a championship contender with your best two players being McCall Bridges and Cameron Johnson. And no shade to those guys. I think they're fantastic talents, but I don't, I like, I don't know if they are the two guys who can lead you to anything substantial in the NBA. So we're going to go ahead and mosey on over to the other New York sports team that is currently up three games to one on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Folks, I am, of course, talking about the New York Knickerbockers, who on the shoulders of Jalen Brunson are looking like they're about to pull off an upset that I certainly did not foresee. I picked Cleveland in this series, although I did acknowledge the fact that these two teams are very, very evenly matched. And I largely picked Cleveland on the fact that I expected Donovan Mitchell to not look like shit. And he's looked like shit so far. Maybe I'm being a little harsh, but he definitely looked like shit in game four. 11 points on, what was it? 11 points on like 5 of 18 shooting, which dropped his average for the season down to, or not for the season, for the series, down to 22. Still shooting only 43.5%. From the field, Darius Garland has had a forgettable series as well, shooting just a shade under 42% with uh, 20 points per game. And I think that this is a credit more so to the Knicks' defense as opposed to, or really, yeah, I think that this is more to blame. I think that Cleveland's struggles are more attributable to the Knicks' improved defense. Now, this was a team, this, this Knicks team was among one of the Worst teams, worst defensive teams in the NBA. I think their regular season net rating was like 18th best or so, or not their net rating. Um, I'm sorry, not their net rating, their defensive rating. So according to Basketball Reference, they were 19th in defensive rating, 13th in points per game allowed. As of today, at the time of this recording, it is Tuesday. They are the first, they rank first in defensive efficiency and second in points per game allowed, which is a huge jump for a team whose best defensive player is Mitchell Robinson, 
and who hasn't even really been that effective on defense. I mean, obviously he's been effective, but I'm just talking in terms of like shot blocking, having humongous shot blocking performances. You know, he is, if New York were putting up these kinds of numbers, you would expect Mitchell Robinson to look like Anthony Davis or Jaron Jackson Jr. And he hasn't looked like that, but he doesn't need to look like that because this Knicks team, being coached by Tom Thibodeau, has bought into a just grindy, gritty, disgusting basketball. And it, it it's working out for them. I think a lot of it is as well based off of Jalen Brunson and how he carries himself as a leader both in the locker room and on the court. Like for a guy who's not that great of a defender, when you see your best player putting in work on that end, you're going to want to step up. It's very much like how when you see Giannis take a charge or where you see or when you saw LeBron take a charge on John Morant when your best player is willing to sacrifice themselves you're going to want to step up you know RJ Barrett Julius Randle Josh Hart he's been tremendous on defense as well particularly having to guard those guys on the perimeter because that's where Cleveland gets a majority of their offense like it is it has been a spectacular defensive performance from the Knicks and I feel like this kind of series is one wherein Tom Thibodeau proves that he's one of the better coaches in the NBA in the NBA because these were very much like how his teams were in Chicago you know you get most of your production from one or two guys like a Derrick Rose or a Jimmy Butler or a Jalen Brunson and then you lean on somebody or you lean on a couple of guys to lock down defense now of course in Chicago you expected these kinds of performances because you had a guy like Joakim Noah you had Luol Dang. You had Taj Gibson when he was younger. It was It's a little more expected in this. It's a little bit less expected with this Knicks team. But still, I, like you cannot overlook how dominant they've been defensively. And it's a huge reason why they've been able to jump out to this lead, including... Um, which, which includes them stealing game one on the road, which, of course, is a tremendous way to start off any series in in any playoffs that has a series. Now, the goofiest thing that has happened throughout these playoffs has been Milwaukee's absolute combustion at the hands of the Miami Heat. Currently, the Milwaukee Bucks, the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, not only that, the number one overall team in the NBA, the most winning, the most winningest team in the NBA this season. My pick to bring home the NBA championship is down three games to one. Now, there has been, of course, some wackiness going on in terms of Giannis's health. Of course, he's only played in two games thus far. Of course. Milwaukee won one of those games without him. You know, you have Brooke Lopez. You have Chris Middleton. Even without Giannis, there is still no reason for Milwaukee to be trailing in this series. It's very rare that a an eighth seed, like the Miami Heat, a team that had struggled all throughout the regular season, can even come close to sniffing the backs of the kneecaps of the number one overall seed. And it's because of one guy. And that is Jimmy Butler. The NBA is the most individualistic of the four major sports. But even with that, you, more times than not, 98% of the time, you cannot beat a team 
with only one guy carrying you. It simply does not happen. Even when you look at when LeBron and the Cavs won the title in 2016, you know, LeBron won finals MVP and LeBron gets all the praise. But who had 41 points in game five? Kyrie Irving. Who hit the go-ahead shot at the end, at the end of game seven? Kyrie Irving. It's never or it's seldom just one guy. But in this instance, guys, it is literally just Jimmy Butler. After dropping 56 points in game four, one of the greatest playoff basketball performances I have ever seen. Like, regardless of what happens with the rest of the series, statistically, Jimmy Butler had the fourth best playoff game of all time if you're going by points scored. But just like the context of everything, when he entered the game, Miami was down 98 to 97, or no, 98 to 87, I want to say, and they wound up winning that game by what, 15? No, by, by five, pardon me. I don't know where I got 15 from. He led this incredible fourth quarter run all by himself. He did it with remarkable efficiency. Let's just, I'm not even going to try to describe this to you guys. I'm just going to let the box score do the talking. Jimmy Butler, 56 points, 19 of 28 from the field. Three of eight from three for a guy who does not shoot the three particularly well. 15 of 18 from the line, okay? In the first quarter, had 22. In the fourth quarter, had 21. The just immense conditioning from Jimmy Butler to not only have this nuclear scoring performance, but he had this performance while spending the majority of the game guarding either Drew Holiday, Giannis, or Brooke Lopez. He was guarding three of the Bucks' four best players. He even had some possessions against Chris Middleton. And that was to do that, to dig in, to get into your defensive stance against a, a former MVP like Giannis, and then go back down on the other end and drop 20 in multiple quarters is absolutely breathtaking. I was speechless watching this performance. Like they Reggie Miller mentioned that this was the greatest performance of any Miami Heat basketball player ever. That of course over that of course puts it on the same pedestal as the 45 and 15 that LeBron had back in 2012 against the Boston Celtics. Now on just on box score alone I feel that those two performances are right next to one another. However, when you take in the total context of what that did for LeBron and his legacy, I put that just a little bit higher. But regardless, this was still a ridiculous performance from Jimmy Butler. Like almost indescribable. Like almost indescribable. I was watch I watched this game with my own two eyes and I'm like there's no way that the Bucks are going to have this epic collapse. There's just, there's there's no way. You mean to tell me that Giannis, Brooke Lopez, Drew Holiday, and Chris Middleton couldn't beat Jimmy Butler? Listen, I know that Jimmy Butler, playoff Jimmy Butler, is probably one of the 75 greatest NBA players of all time, but there is no reason that this should have happened. Why Milwaukee did not elect to throw more bodies at Jimmy Butler, I don't know. Because... No one else was going to beat you that night, guys. I'm, it's just the truth. No one has beaten 
Milwaukee outside of Jimmy Butler. Your next highest scoring member of the Miami Heat was Bam Adebayo with 15. Caleb Martin then gives you 12, and Gabe Vincent gives you 10. You could have thrown three bodies at Jimmy Butler and played the percentages and played the shooting percentages, and you probably could have made out better. But that has been something that has that Milwaukee has struggled to overcome in this series because they are down three games to one despite the fact that the Heat have actually given Jimmy Butler no help. This is like, I'm not being hyperbolic here. They are averaging, yes, 123 points per night. They have gotten a lot of scoring from their role players, from guys like Duncan Robinson, Caleb Martin, uh, Victor Oladipo before he got hurt, Tyler Hero before he was hurt. But bam, your second superstar, a guy who is an all-star caliber talent, or not your second superstar, your second star, pardon me, an all-star caliber talent is giving you 16, or actually about 17 on a 48% shooting. By no means are these bad numbers. This is not, like, I'm not trying to put Bam down, but this is not the type of production a, a, a series-leading team should be getting from their number two. And even still, even still, Miami has been able to overcome this. Now, why have they been able to overcome this? It is because they are finally back to shooting like how we expected them to. Throughout this enti- throughout the campaign, Miami's offense flailed. They flailed spectacularly because they were not able to put the ball in the basket from the perimeter. The only guy from the previous season who maintained reliable efficiency from three was Tyler Hero. Gabe Vincent fell off. Max Struess fell off. Duncan Robinson fell out of the rotation. Jimmy Butler, of course, has never been really reliable from, from three. And even if he has been reliable, that's not a part of his game. They have they were one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the association this season. Now, in these four games against Milwaukee, they're up to 48% from three. You have Caleb Martin, 7 of 15. Duncan Robinson, 13 of 17. Gabe Vincent, 10 of 21. Even Kevin Love is 8 of 19. Max Struess, 5 of 13. Like... It's just timely shooting. And this is something that I mentioned last week was that if Miami is able to find their stroke, they become a significantly scarier team, especially when you combine that with the fact that Jimmy Butler is on demon time. Now, how does Milwaukee come back from this? Well, on the bright side, Giannis is seemingly healthy. He had a triple-double in game four. Uh, 23 points, 11 assists, something like that. Shot relatively well from the field. You got, of course, fantastic production from Brooke Lopez, finished with 33. You have to, first and foremost, force somebody else to have a big game. Force, bam, to go for 30. Force, well, you, I mean, that's it. You basically have to force Bam to beat you because no one else on the Miami Heat is beating you straight up like that. Okay, especially since Tyler Hero is out, especially since Victor Oladipo is out. Bam is the only other guy who could beat you. I think that Miami should, I think that, pardon me, Milwaukee should look at what Brooklyn did with Joel Embiid and figure out how they can do the same thing to Jimmy Butler. That is the best course of action for them defensively. And then if you get beat, by everybody else shooting 48% from three, I think you live with it. If you get beat by Bam Adebayo scoring 35, 
I think you I think you live with it because first of all, Miami is not going to continue to shoot this well from the perimeter for the rest of the series. I don't think should it go beyond game five. They're going to return to normal. They're going to average out eventually. And then as far as Bam having a big game, he has yet to have a big game. So make him make him post up against Brooke Lopez. Make him seek out mismatches. Make him be the all-around offensive talent that we know he can be. First and foremost, though, you got to take the ball out of Jimmy Butler's hands. You got to figure out a way to... You got to figure out a way to double him, whether you blitz him at half court, whether, you know, you switch up how quickly you come with double teams, whether you switch up who comes with a double team. That should be Mike Budenholzer's priority. And it's actually mind boggling that he didn't think of this in the fourth quarter. You could have prevented if he had 22 in the first. Okay, that that's fine. We'll take it. He got hot. He was making shots. Shit happens. But to have 22 in the first. And then 21 in the fourth proves that you simply did not make any sort of adjustment. And then also, another thing, Drew Holiday has got to be better. Straight up, there's really nothing more I can say on this situation. I mean, he's averaging 18 right now, but he's shooting just 40% from the field and 28% from three. If Milwaukee is going to beat anybody, Drew Holiday has to play better than this, but he especially has to play better than this when Giannis may or may not be at full health. So um, I will say, I don't think the Miami Heat's lead is safe in this series. I think they should be favored to win, but you're dealing with the Milwaukee Bucks. You're dealing with a former NBA. You're dealing with the championship caliber team. You're dealing with also Giannis, who is, one of the greatest players of the last couple of years. You cannot get lackadaisical. I don't think Miami will. I mean, I know Jimmy Butler is a very intense person. I know that he knows that they still got Giannis. They still got Chris Middleton. They still got Drew Holiday. I mean, Brooke Lopez literally just had 33. So he knows that this is, you know, even more, even more of a reason for them to figure out a way to perpetuate this. But above and beyond, like Milwaukee just has to figure out how to how to make Bam Adebayo beat them. Now, another uber entertaining series has been Lakers Grizzlies. Despite the fact that the Lakers have taken a 3-1 lead. I was, you know, watching the game last night. It was in it was a lovely performance from LeBron James had his first 2020 game of his career. Anthony Davis hit some timely shots. Um D'Angelo Russell was huge as well. Had a couple big threes down the stretch before unfortunately fouling out. But I picked the Lakers in this series, and it is shaping up to be a Lakers victory. Um, of course, I do want to shout out to Desmond Bain as well. Absolutely popped off. John Morant has looked fantastic as well. Really does not look like that hand is bothering him at all when it comes to scoring, at least. But I picked the Lakers in this series not because I'm like a John Morant hater, um, not because I'm a Dylan Brooks hater, although I do like to make fun of Dylan Brooks because he is an easy target, but it is because regardless of John Morant's hand, regardless of how feckless Dylan Brooks has been in this series, what hurts Memphis more than anything else is no Steven Adams and no Brandon Clark. That has been without a doubt something that has hurt them more than Dylan Brooks could ever. Now, I do want to get to Dylan Brooks because this man is just, he is producing so much content for us. 
This guy calls LeBron old, okay? Claims that he is a villain. Dylan Brooks, my brother, you are not a villain, okay? You are you are averaging 11 points in this series. You have an effective field goal percentage of 39. You've had 15 personals called on you in four games. You are a villain in the same way that Scrappy-Doo is a villain. I do, however, want to say that it was bogus of him to get ejected in Game 3. That was, of course, the now famous nut shot on LeBron, which the referees deemed um, a flagrant two. Don't know how how they came to that conclusion, although maybe it's because nut shots are seemingly way more prominent in this playoffs in in these playoffs than ever before. Of course you have Royce O'Neal. Um the only other time I think it compares is when <laughs> Draymond Green kicked Steven Adams in the balls not once but twice a couple years ago when Adams was on the Thunder. So but yeah, ultimately it was a bogus ejection because just the way the play unfolded, Brooks gambled on a steal. He thought that LeBron was going to cross over in front of him. He instead went behind his back and Brooks reached in got a, you know, cop to feel on the King's crown and ultimately wound up getting ejected. That was a bogus ejection, but that does not change the fact that Dylan Brooks is ass straight up. Now, what's really strange about this is Dylan Brooks is ass. Okay. Statistically on an individual statistical level, this dude stinks. However, Memphis, when you look at their net rating, when Brooks is on the court compared to when Brooks is off the court, there is only a seven-tenths of a point swing. Granted, Memphis has been getting thoroughly ass-blasted this series, so the net rating is still negative, but Brooks's net rating when he's on the court is negative 5.1. When he's off the court, that net rating is just negative 4.4. Now, for context... There is really no player for Memphis seeing significant minutes that has a positive net rating because they just have not looked. They just have not played very well consistently throughout this series. So that's why, as much as I love to hate on Dylan Brooks, I don't think that he is a huge detriment to the Grizzlies. I think that, you know, he plays with a lot of intensity. He does play with an edge. I think he's leaning into that role um, wholeheartedly. I, I think he thoroughly enjoys it because it gives something it gives people something to dissect about him that isn't his game. Now, Memphis I think buys into this because, you know, when you see so, when you see one of the better players on your team granted he's probably like the fourth best guy on the team playing well. I mean, you know, not backing down from LeBron, not like anyone in the NBA is going to back down from LeBron just from a competitive point of view, but I do think they buy into it. I think Memphis, you know, leans very much into the grit and grind you know, the edgy team that Memphis has or the edgy brand that Memphis has cultivated over all these years, you know, with guys like Zach Randolph and Tony Allen, like Dylan Brooks has the same type of vibes as Tony Allen. He's just not, he's just not as good, but that's why I come back to the point that not having Steven Adams or Brandon Clark hurts them more than anything else because a huge piece of Memphis's game throughout the year was their ability to crash the offensive boards. I think Steven Adams was the league leader in offensive rebounding this year, or at least offensive rebounds per game. He averaged five. Nearly half of his total rebounds came on the offensive end. And not only, you know, your ability to corral these offensive rebounds, but to put backs, you know, put backs or 
always great. And a guy like Steven Adams or Brandon Clark is going to have tremendous opportunity to do that, but also just kickouts, restarting possessions. It is a huge piece of what Memphis does. And it's also a huge piece of why they scored so many points in the paint this year on top of, you know, John Morant being able to get there basically at will. But yeah, no Steven Adams and no Brandon Clark hurts Memphis more than Dylan Brooks could ever imagine. Even if he were intentionally trying to sabotage the Grizzlies, he would not be able to compare to the injuries that Adams and Clark sustained. Now, we're just going to get into some numbers here. So as I mentioned before, Memphis, during the regular season, averaged 58.4 points in the paint and 15.3 second-chance points. Through these four games, they're down to 49 points in the paint and just above 11 second-chance points. They simply just do not have the size to compete with the Lakers. Xavier Tillman has, you know, done his best in, you know, working with what he has. He had a great performance in game two, but he is still not the consistent threat on the offensive end that Steven Adams was, particularly around the basket. And Jaron Jackson Jr., as great of a player as he is, he's not a guy who's going to hang out in the paint like Steven Adams is. He's all over the place for Memphis. Like, he has a crucial part in their offense, and... You know, it's it's just extra tough for them to compete with, you know, somebody like Anthony Davis, even though Anthony Davis has not played particularly well throughout this series. I think he's only at like 19 points a game. But yeah, it's just very poor timing for Memphis. Um, also, LeBron, duh. I don't think we could talk about any team, any any Lakers team being this successful without LeBron. I mean, there's, you know, there is just nothing more that I could say about LeBron James. Like, there is, like, no more dick riding that I could do because this guy has been doing it for 20 fucking years. He's 38 years old, averaging 24, 13, and 5, shooting damn near 50% from the field. And he's shooting damn near 50% for the field, from the field, despite being 5 of 27 from 3. He's just been LeBron. That, that's it. But, you know, this isn't the LeBron show. Well, I mean, this is the LeBron show, obviously. But this isn't, you know, writer, producer, director LeBron. This is LeBron that actually has a very solid team around him. And this is one of the reasons why I was so optimistic about the Lakers pull, putting together a respectable playoff run because Rob Palinka fixed this team. He fixed the team that he fucked up. So, you know, I will give him credit for that. It was great that he brought in Rui Hachimura. It was great that he facilitated that trade for D'Angelo Russell. Jared Vanderbilt as well has been tremendous for this team. Uh, hit a couple big threes yesterday to start the game off just to, you know, help LA's offense find a little bit of a rhythm. And then, but more so than anything else, it's been his contributions to defense. But really, the two other guys in this series that we need to talk about outside of LeBron are Rui Hachimura and Austin Reeves, both of whom have developed tremendously since coming to the Lakers. Rui Hachimura is playing the best basketball of his career. And Austin Reeves, in the span of one season, has gone from, you know, He's gone from being a meme to being one of the Lakers' most reliable offensive assets. Like, he is a full-blown 
playmaker now. I was watching this skinny kid. Uh, he, I don't know where he's from. He looks like he's from Kansas. I'm watching him play with unbridled confidence. I'm watching Austin Reeves play like he's the best player on the court while sharing the court with LeBron fucking James. I mean, it's been incredible, his development throughout the season. But him and Hachimura have formed a relentless duo. So far, they're combining for 36 points a night, or just about 35.8. I'm, I'm rounding up. 35.8 points per game on 17 of 33 shooting from three. It's been like, this is the type of production that Darvin Ham could have only dreamed of from these guys. And they have, you know, they've stepped up. Rui Hachimura had like 26 in game one, if I remember correctly. 29 in game one, 20 in game two, 16 on six of 10 shooting in game three. And, you know, we're still talking about him despite him having a forgettable game in game four, which is bound to happen. You know, shit like that. It it, it happens. It it happens. But the Lakers would not be in this position without Hachimura, without Austin Reeves, especially them two stepping up um, in, I don't want to say the absence of Anthony Davis, but in the mild inconsistencies of Anthony Davis, who's averaging less than 20 points a night, 19 and a half on a 42.6% shooting. So it's not been a great series for him thus far. But yeah, Memphis... I love the Dylan. Uh, listen, I, I I think the Dylan Brooks slander is fun. I I think that it's healthy to have a guy like Dylan Brooks who is you know quote unquote villainous, even though he's not really just for like just from like a content perspective. But I anyone who says that this is entirely Dylan Brooks' fault is just ignoring the fact that Memphis was starting off disadvantaged without one of their most crucial. Players like we knew that this was going to be the Dylan Brooks that showed up because this was the Dylan Brooks that showed up every fucking game throughout the regular season. You got and y'all thought that this was going to change in the playoffs. No. So, yeah, I mean, is he to blame? Yeah, obviously he could he could stand to shoot a little bit better, but you can't overlook the fact that no Steven Adams and no Brandon Clark is what's killing the Grizzlies faster than anything else. Uh, I'm not going to run through every series here. I'm not really going to talk about Denver. I'm not really going to talk about Boston just because I feel that those two teams have quite the advantage over their respective opponents. I will say one thing about Denver, though. If this is the team that is going to show up consistently, I think that they do have a legitimate chance to win a title, especially you know that Milwaukee might not be there. The only other team that they would have to worry about is Boston. But you're getting, you know, you're getting Nikola Jokic 25, 11, and 8. You're getting 25 a night from Jamal Murray right now. On close to 40% shooting, that is the type of production Jamal Murray is going to have to bring if Denver is to be a contender. And then, of course, you have Michael Porter Jr. Michael never passed the rock Porter Jr. who is playing with... I, I love him. I, I love Michael Porter Jr. I love that he is the type of player... That he is. Um, I will say, though, the Minnesota Timberwolves, the experiment is not working. Rudy Gobert is not, he's not fitting well with this team. Carl Anthony Towns is not playing particularly well either, averaging just 16 a night. But Anthony, Anthony Edwards, that's a fucking good basketball player. That is a, listen, w regardless of 
what happens with Minnesota, you know, regardless of what happens with Rudy Gobert, it is an absolute necessity that you do everything in your power to keep Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns together. Because that duo, that duo can be something frightening in a couple of years. So now, Warriors-Kings, which has been probably the most balanced series thus far, I would say. It is the only 2-2 series right now, the only tied series, and that's more or less what I expected from this series. I think Sacra- I thought Sacramento was going to have enough to pull out. Whoa. <laughs> uh, I, I should rephrase it. I picked Sacramento to come out ahead in this series, but the Warriors, fully healthy, okay? Andrew Wiggins, Gary Payton Jr., Gary Payton, yeah, Gary Payton, GP2, I should say, um, Jordan Poole, Draymond is back from his one-game suspension, and then, of course, you still have Steph fucking Curry, who looks just like Steph fucking Curry. Now, a huge shakeup has happened in this series, and it was announced that De'Aaron Fox suffered a fracture in his left index finger. That is his dominant hand, and he is currently listed as doubtful for game five. Now, I am currently recording this at 10 to 3 Eastern time on Tuesday. As of now, there has been no official injury report released by the Sacramento Kings. If I had to guess, De'Aaron Fox will be doing everything in his power to play. If John Morant, if John Morant can play through whatever he's playing through and, you know, look like his like look like himself, I think De'Aaron Fox has the necessary confidence to do so. I just don't know how much this impacts him. And we won't know until game five starts. Will he look like John Morant and have issues handling the ball? Which against a an elite defense, I mean, granted they, you know, statistically they're not elite, but a team like Golden State that has a history of being an elite defense can be a bit of an issue. You know, Draymond Green, Von Looney, Andrew Wiggins, like those guys got they, they got sticky fingers. Okay. So, but I mean, if you know John Morant is anything to go off of, it's only been the handle that has been an issue. The shooting's been fine, the passing's been fine. I mean, granted, in game four in that series. In a Lakers-Grizzlies, no one could fucking pass. It was some of the sloppiest, most just disjointed basketball I had ever seen. But, yeah, I, I do know this. If De'Aaron Fox is unable to play, like if the fracture is that bad, or if he is not close to like 60% of himself, there is nothing that Sacramento can do to pull out this series, I think. Because this has been an offensive shootout the entire way. These two teams are combining for 232 points per game. Golden State is at a buck 17. Sacramento is at a buck 15. And when you look at these two teams, their offenses are more or less entirely catalyzed by one person. Or, yeah, Darren Fox for Sacramento and Steph Curry for Golden State, both of whom are averaging 31.5 points per game by the way, both of whom are shooting with respectable efficiency, uh, 45% for De'Aaron Fox, 49% for Steph, which is way more than respect respectable. It's actually phenomenal considering, you know, he he's so high volume, 
But when you look at the rest of the Sacramento Kings lineup, 17.5 from Malik Monk, which is great from Malik Monk. But 16 from DeMontis Sabonis, which I think is right around his season average. Yeah, he averaged about 19 during the regular season. He's down to 16. He has not played particularly well um, this series. But, yeah, I mean, no shit. If one of these guys goes down and is unable to play, then the team that is without their best player is more likely going to lose. But I was doing some digging, and I found some interesting on-off numbers, which is like, I think on-off numbers are like my new thing. As I've gotten older, I've I've like found myself interested in the strangest fucking things like trains. I think I don't know what happened, but I turned 26 and I'm like, I think trains are the fucking coolest thing ever. I don't know if it's just me yearning for robust public transit for robust public transit infrastructure in the United States. But on off numbers are like the basketball equivalent of that to me. So Sacramento's offensive rating when Fox is on the court is 110 Point nine points per 100 possessions. When he's off the court, that drops to 102.4. However, when Fox is also off the court, their defensive rating is 91. They allow 91 points per 100 possessions when De'Aaron Fox is not on the court. However, I must re- I I do recognize the fact that this is a ridiculously small sample size at just 38 minutes a night, but it does make you think, would the Kings be able to manage defensively if De'Aaron Fox is there? I'm going to say the opposite of what the numbers say. I, I think no, simply because Sacramento is a dog shit defensive team. They do not have good defenders on that team. They were the most dynamic offense in the NBA this year, and that was at the expense of their defense. And I think, I, you know, historically, I have more confidence in the Warriors being able to do that than the Sacramento Kings. So, yeah, in, in regards to that, like with it being so with this series being so focused on offense, De'Aaron Fox getting hurt in any way and not being able to produce at the level he's producing at right now is a huge blow to 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 the Sacramento Kings and one that I don't think they'll be able to overcome now the final series I'm going to talk about is a Suns Clippers and although this series has been one-sided I do still have a lot of questions okay my first question is how the fuck is Russ cooking like this how is Russ cooking with more how is he cooking with more panache than ever before this is a version of Russ that we hadn't seen since that one year he was in Houston Okay, let's just let's let's take a gander at these numbers. Russell Westbrook at 34 years old is averaging 26 points, seven and a half rebounds, 7.3 assists, 1.8 blocks, and 1.5 steals. This is oh, and I I left out the best part. He is shooting the most efficiently that I think we have ever seen. 46% from the field, 41% from three, 88% from two, 88% from the line. Now, I'm sure there are people who are hearing me say how Russ, how like, how is Russ cooking like this and thinking that, yeah, no shit, he's cooking like this. 
This is always the type of player that Russ has been. And I'm going to say that you are partially correct, partially incorrect. Russ has always been a very high-volume basketball player. The efficiency is always what kept him from being elevated to the like elite of the elite, if you know what I mean. Like His, his inconsistency from the field kept him out of the Steph, Kyrie, Damian Lillard tier, if that makes any sense. But I am the first person to say that Russ on the Clippers is a way better fit than Russ on the Lakers. I've been saying ever since Russ got traded that this was not a trade that the Lakers should have made. They did not need Russ. Russ is not going to fit on that team. Russ is going to go there and not perform. And then people are going to think that Russell Westbrook is washed. And that is precisely what happened. So I was elated when I saw that he was going to the Clippers. I was elated when he saw when I saw him hitting hitting the open market. And I'm like, this is this is the perfect matchup. The Clippers need a point guard, and Russ is a fucking point guard, man. Now I am a little, I am a little, I'm way impressed at his defensive intensity. Russ has always been like a very iffy defender because of his energy. I guess he is so intense that he doesn't always play the most straight up defense, which you know. That's fine. I mean, he's he's pestering the ball handler. I don't really have an issue with it. It's just that, you know, got to be careful with the fouls. You know, you have this load that you have to worry about on offense. But he's been incredible. Um, Obviously, the, the thing that's done it for the Clippers is he's been incredible. But Kawhi has been incredibly absent from this series. And Paul George has also been incredibly absent from this series. And that's, of course, not a shade at any of their performances. It's a shade at their physical condition. Paul George has not played a single minute in this series because of a knee injury, I believe. And Kawhi, who was absolutely fucking stroking it to start, um, has been effectively shut down. Um, I don't know. Yeah, he's out for tonight's game. So I really don't envision a world where the Clippers extend this series. I mean, I could be wrong. I've been wrong on a bunch of shit before. But Russell Westbrook and Norman Powell are not beating Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, especially when Devin Booker is averaging 35 a night on 57% shooting, and Kevin Durant is averaging 28, 8, and 7 on 52% shooting. But this is, of course, a drastically different series if Kawhi is playing. I mean, you know, we saw what Kawhi did in the first two games of this series. He had 38 in... um. 38 in the first game, and what, like 32 in the second game, despite it being a loss. But for the series, he's at about he's at 34 and a half points, was shooting 55% from the field. And then, and then, of course, the biggest problem with not having Kawhi Leonard is that you no longer have a guy who can stick on either Kevin Durant or Devin Booker. But I mean, Russ has filled that role quite well. Last I saw, you know, he was average. He was allowing like. 25% shooting from Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, and Chris Paul. But yeah, it's just, it's tough because whoever you put on Russ, they can just give the rock to the other dude. Like you don't have that, you don't have Kawhi and, you know, obviously not Paul George because if you have Kawhi and Paul George, you can D up on both Devin Booker and Kevin Durant with an elite defender. And then you have Russ and you could stick him on whomever the fuck you want. You could stick him on Chris Paul. You could stick him on... Tory Craig, and effectively, that's really all you have to worry about because even though Phoenix has been dominant this entire series, I have many issues or many questions about their depth. 
So when Phoenix made this trade for Kevin Durant, it is, of course, a trade that any general manager would make if they have the assets to pull it off. A, a huge question is, okay, well, what is your depth going to be like? Because you're trading McCall Bridges and you're trading Cameron Johnson. And then, of course, Jay Crowder has not been with the team at all. Uh, well, no shit. Be yeah, no shit, Zach, because he got fucking traded to Milwaukee. But who is going to pick up the scoring for you? Who is going to be that guy off the bench to, you know, save a playoff game? Like, who's going to be a Lou Williams or who's going to be a Jordan Clarkson? And the theoretical answer is TJ Warren. But TJ Warren has, a, has played in only two of these games. And he has played a combined total of six minutes. I don't know why he has fallen out of Phoenix's rotation. Um, he appears to be healthy, I guess. I mean, he was a huge piece of the Nets rotation. Like, he was a guy who was coming off the bench and giving buckets consistently. And why Phoenix is not utilizing this, I don't know. But... I have huge questions for Phoenix's depth because they have the worst bench in basketball right now. Both, I guess, in terms of just, like, name. Both in terms of, like, name recognition. I mean, Josh Okogie, Bismack Biombo, Damian Lee is a guy who should be seeing more time as well. Great, great, great three-point shooter who, you know, can keep the floor spaced. Uh, Jock Landale as well saw eight minutes in game one. And has not seen any time for the rest of the series. Like Landry Shamit, Who is going to step up for this team? And the answer is nobody. Because right now they have statistically the lowest scoring bench in basketball. 12.5 points. Worse than Brooklyn. Which is saying a lot. And their reserves are shooting just 34% from the field. So it is not looking good for the Los Angeles Clippers, but you know, this just because the Suns are popping off doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna run they're gonna run rough shot through everybody and waltz their way into the finals because depth is a huge ingredient in any playoff cake. Any, you know, championship pastry that you're trying to construct needs depth. Okay, you can have all the sugar. You can add all the milk, all the butter, but if you don't have, you know, if you don't have that flour, if you don't got that yeast to make it all rise, you're just going to be eating a fucking shitty pancake. And I saw this come across my Google News feed today. It's an article from The Ringer, and it is entitled, or it is titled, Nine Thoughts on the Lakers, Dame to Brooklyn, and the NBA's First Round. Now, I don't want to talk about any of the playoff commentary in here because... Like, I literally just spent 45 minutes talking about that. I do, however, want to scroll down to the ninth bullet, which is Dame to Brooklyn question mark emoji. The blurb is titled, Where do the Nets go from here? Michael, P M Michael Pina writes, What a year. Brooklyn entered this season as a title contender. The team left it as a speed bump. What now? Bridges' emergence is someone capable of assuming a top-shelf scorer's burden after the trade deadline only Zach Levine took more shots and potentially becoming an all-star is massive. Claxton became one of the league's best defenders, should have been defensive player of the year. That's my commentary, not theirs. And there's suddenly draft capital for the Nets to dangle in a summer trade. What they need is obvious. Before Game 3, Jacques Vaughn was asked about his team's inability to get downhill and create shots attacking the paint. He sat back, looked towards the ceiling, 
and spoke the truth. Quote, I'm just going to be as simple as possible. It's personnel. I mentioned this at the top of the show. This is where I got it from. The numbers say that they were eliminated over the numbers say that before they were eliminated over the weekend, Brooklyn led the postseason in drives per 100 possessions and only three teams did it more after the trade deadline. But by and large, the Nets weren't at all effective in the way Vaughn means. Translation, Brooklyn has fantastic supporting pieces and role players. All it needs to complement, accentuate, and uplift its army of two-way wings is a flamethrowing point guard, preferably one who can create his own, own shots, draw two defenders, run effective pick and roll, and balance out the roster, which is desperate for more playmaking. The summer, the Nets may have two marquee options. The first is Trey Young. I don't like him as much, especially compared to Damian Lillard. Lillard is one of the NBA's... Oh, that was my commentary as well, by the way, for all the audio listeners. Me personally, as a fan, I prefer Dame to Trey Young, especially after seeing how, especially after seeing how efficient Dame was this season. That was what did it for me. Lillard is one of the NBA's top 75 players of all time and is coming off his best season. He has also proven leadership chops that would enrich Brooklyn's culture instead of plunging it into acid. This is, of course, a not-so-felt shot at Kyrie Irving. Dame's on-court weaknesses would be hidden in the shrubbery of the long, versatile defenders, which can provide exactly what he's never had all these years in Portland. Brooklyn can move Spencer Dinwiddie to the bench and give itself a sixth man, then unleash Bridges as the capable number two offensive option he's more suited to being the Nets don't have any intriguing young players to offer what they do have is Ben Simmons's contract Patty Mills four unprotected picks from the Suns one unprotected pick from the Mavs in their own first round pick in 2029 that is six first round picks six Rudy Gobert got four guys Rudy Gobert got four first round picks Damian Lillard can easily get five or all six of these Blazers fans won't like my hypothetical trade, but for a team that's stuck between two separate timelines and could rebuild around Shade and Sharp and for any Simons and whoever they get in this year's draft, it's pretty damn good. Should be noted that Portland has a 10.5% chance at landing Victor Wembanyama. And if Lillard has his eyes set on playing for the Nets, which he should, Portland will likely acquiesce in favor of other offers that are theoretically more favorable. They'll do right for the best player in franchise history. This last line is not one that a lot of people buy into, because and myself included because of the whole like loyalty in sports thing being not true. However, I feel that Portland would do the right thing by Damian Lillard because he has been with this team for so long and he has been through so much shit. I mean, Brooklyn did the right thing for Kevin Durant after only three years. Like they traded him to a situation that he wanted to go to. They didn't have to do that. They, they didn't. I mean, it also helped that Phoenix had arguably the most enticing package, but they didn't have to do that. Just like they did with Kyrie. So, you know, especially because Dame has been unproblematic. He hasn't been, you know, outspoken. He hasn't, you know, talked messy of anybody in the organization, at least as far as I can remember off top. He's just a very nice, humble, chill dude who just wants to hoop, right? Very much like Kevin Durant. And this, the, for me, the whole idea of Dame going to Brooklyn became possible after they traded Kyrie Irving because they trade Kyrie Irving to the Dallas Mavericks and they get back DFS and they get back Spencer Dinwiddie and they get back some draft compensation and you still have a week until the trade deadline. Kevin Durant only requested a trade because Kyrie got traded. 
I was thinking to myself, what if, and of course this was before like the KD trade request became public. I'm thinking to myself, is there a way that Brooklyn flips all of these guys for somebody like Damian Lillard? And then you get back a player who is as good as Kyrie Irving without all of the baggage and without the and without the constant shroud of seeming of you know seeming negativity. I thought that was a real possibility back at the trade deadline. Then of course, you know, Dame gets shut down after the trade deadline and you know, no one really no one really mentioned it. Now though, I think that this is going to garner considerable steam in the offseason. And I will be the first one to say it. I love the idea of Damian Lillard in Brooklyn for all of the reasons that was talked about in this article and for the numerous reasons that Dame has that Dame has shown us on the court. He had the best season of his career. He averaged 32 a night, shot 46% from the field. I mean, I think that it's it would be a great fit. Of course, you can hide him defensively because he is a, a horrific defender. But what he gives you on offense is rivaled by only a few guys in the NBA. And Brooklyn has the, you know, draft capital to swing it. I don't know if I I don't know if there are any players that Portland would try to get back. I as far as I'm concerned, I'm not trading Nick Claxton. He is the one guy. Well, I mean obviously like Mikael Bridges as well, but I don't want to say that he is untouchable, but with just how th- this franchise is projecting Bridges, Johnson, and Claxton are going to be the three guys not in any trade negotiations unless you're negotiating for like fucking Giannis or somebody. You can counter with Ben Simmons and Cam Thomas. You know, maybe Ben Simmons removing himself entirely from a massive media market, going to a rebuilding team will help just get his mind right again and just get his body right again. Because we can't ignore the fact that, you know, despite everything that happened this year, Ben Simmons, if he returns to his potential, is an elite player. He is an elite passer. He's an elite defender. And maybe, you know, Portland also calls asking about Cam Thomas. And with how Thomas has been playing, with how he's fallen out of the rotation for whatever fucking reason, I I just don't think Jacques Vaughn is all in on Cam Thomas right now. So that's someone that you could part with as well. So, I mean, realistically, the trade package is probably going to be Portland being like, we need at least five of these picks or a swap or something. They're going to at least ask for four. Rudy Gobert got four. And again, if Rudy Gobert is getting four, Dame is getting more. Then you throw a player in. I'm offering them Cam Thomas because there really is nobody else on the team. And then Ben Simmons' contract to match. And if this is, you know, if this is what Dame wants, because ultimately these negotiations will be dictated by what Damian Lillard wants to do. If he says, I want to go to Brooklyn, they're going to go to Brooklyn. But he's going to go to Brooklyn and Portland is going to make sure they get the right price back for him as well. But I think five picks plus Cam Thomas plus Ben Simmons is a decent... It's a decent return, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, they have a top, they could potentially get Victor Wembanyama this um this summer. 
and also that they are just not really going to be competing for anything. Why keep Dame on this team if he wants to go and win elsewhere? Now, the final story of the day is one that I find very interesting. It is about Charles Barkley, NBA legend, one of the funniest guys on TV. Because inside the NBA with EJ, Shaq, Kenny, you guys know the fucking deal. I don't have to explain it to you. He is getting a political show with CNN. Gail King and Charles Barkley land weekly CNN show King Charles. This comes, this media shakeup comes after an even more sizable media shakeup, and that is with Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson both being relieved from their spots with CNN and Fox, respectively. I mean, two of the biggest names in political media, Tucker Carlson being the biggest, unfortunately enough, both effectively being terminated. And then you have Charles Barkley coming in to not replace Don Lemon, but to, I guess, breathe some life into CNN, which is just like, I won't even call them the come news network because they don't, they don't deserve it. They're just like the fucking mid, honestly, they're just like the mid news network. I listen, I don't know many people that watch cable news, especially folks around my age. So I sure as shit know that folks my age are not watching CNN. I heard someone say that like CNN, like all of their viewership is like people is like gym TV and airport TV. And I wouldn't million percent believe it. So let's just get on with the article. Gail King and Charles Barkley are joining forces in a major way. The two have been confirmed as the hosts of King Charles, a weekly television series coming to CNN. In a statement obtained by Variety, CNN CEO Chris Licht shared details of the pending program. King Charles is set for, quote, primetime beginning this fall and running into 2024. This show will be an exciting new way we are delivering culturally relevant programming and unique perspectives to our audience from two incredibly dynamic personalities. Barkley and King also discussed the news on TNT's NBA tip-off on Saturday, April 22nd, according to CNN. Quote, I want the show to be non-political, said Barkley, though he added that the show would touch on politics. You know, Gail King is going to be a straight shooter. I'm going to be a straight shooter. I know she's going to be fair and honest, and you know I'm going to do the same thing. I think that decorum and courtesy and kindness always work, added King. But everyone I know has an opinion on something. We just need to figure out a way to have a good conversation without tearing each other down. And I think we could do that. Uh, this show is going to flop. I, I already know it's going to flop. Because Gail King, I'm not too familiar with her, admittedly. But I'm very familiar with Charles Barkley. And I'm only familiar with Charles Barkley from a basketball perspective. I know a little bit about his politics, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But what makes Charles Barkley so much fun is that he's on the T- he's on the Inside the NBA crew, and him, Kenny, and Shaq and EJ joke around like the boys in the group chat. It is literally like the group chat has come to life, except suited for television. It's funny. It's entertaining. It's dynamic. It's quirky. It's not necessarily super insightful from an NBA perspective, but that's fine. I mean, when you get on there and you see Shaq run into the board and he fucking falls off his chair, flies out of his shoes, and is just sleep 
on the floor. It's funny. When you hear Chuck talk about them big old women in San Antonio, it's funny. Why the fuck CNN wants to pursue a, a, a show with Charles Barkley is beyond me. Because I don't think that, you know, his opinions on politics are really anything revolutionary. He's just like super, he's a normie. He's a centrist. If anything, he's center-right. I mean, in the United States, if you're a centrist, you are inherently center-right because it is a fucking center-right country. But he doesn't bring anything to the table. And also, when you get into the realm of political commentary, you can only get so far on entertainment. Like, you, you have to be, like, either doing propaganda or you have to be insightful. Otherwise, people are just going to tune out. Topics set to be explored in this series include heavier issues such as gun control as well as lighthearted conversations about food and pop culture. Additionally, King Charles is set to feature public figures related to trending news. Both hosts will remain in their current roles with King anchoring CBS Mornings and Barkley at Warner Brothers Discovery Sports as a commentator. Right, so Gail King does morning news, which is effectively just like... Morning news is fucking just like it it's Norman shit. Like these these two cats are, are normies. And this is the direction that CNN is trending in. If you guys are familiar, CNN, uh, I forget when exactly, but their numbers have been fucking tanking. Tanking, dog. They're getting fucking railed by the more extremist Media outlets being MSNBC, although not really like an extremist left outlet, not, like not being a far left outlet in any way, and Fox News. And so CNN is looking to do this thing where they be like the nonpartisan news network, which they used to do in the past, but ultimately it wasn't so successful because people do not want objective news, okay? They want the news, but delivered to them in a, in a style that they agree with no one fucks with just the news being delivered because if you do fuck with that you're going to the associated press or you're going to npr right if you're watching cable news you want to see a slant right it's just like if you watch ben shapiro you you're seeking him out because you know the style that he's going to deliver it if you're watching Hassan piker you're seeking him out because you know the style he's going to deliver it in charles barkley and gail king are just boring, straight up. Chuck is super all over the place politically. He is like, I'm sure that he is fiscally conservative because a lot of wealthy people are, and Chuck is uber wealthy, but he's also pro-gay marriage, which is great. Also, again, like that is quite actually the bare minimum at this point, but... I'm going to pull up his Wikipedia page because he has had some interesting takes that I I don't know if he still agrees with them, but they are definitely, you know, historically, he is, I don't even know if he is someone who like CNN fans, if they even exist, are particularly into because like, yes, he supports gay rights. Um, He was critical of Donald Trump, but also like, you should be critical of the president, regardless of who the president is, like how I'm critical of Joe Biden and Donald Trump and Barack Obama and literally every other fucking president. Just like that's how you should be as a 
citizen. You should be critical of your government. But he was also like kind of been sitting with the Saudi Golf League. And he was like, you know, let the players go get their money. I mean, he almost took a commentary deal with them. And if you guys know anything about the Saudi regime, you would know that it is a fucking gross. It is just a gross abuser of human rights. And, you know, it's kind of Charles Barkley was seemingly kind of like keep the sports and politics separate. Like he was he came at Donald Trump for calling out Colin Kaepernick, but then also said that he doesn't believe athletes should be kneeling during the anthem as a form of protest, even though it is quite literally a demonstration of peaceful protest recommended to Colin Kaepernick by a Navy SEAL, like someone who worked for the U.S. military. But this is Barclay's Wikipedia page. And I'm just going to, we're going to read through this together because it's very interesting. Barclay spoke for many years of his Republican Party affiliation. In 95, he considered running as a Republican candidate for Alabama's governorship in the 98 election. However, in 2006, he altered his political stance, stating, quote, I was a Republican until they lost their minds, which, I mean, they did. They have gotten incredibly far. They've gone way far right on a litany of social issues, on a litany of economic issues. I mean, you look at the Republican Party now. This is the party that is calling for entitlement cuts cuts to social security and medicare which are by and large the two programs that u.s citizens like the most i mean it's very rare that you get overwhelming agreement on anything in a country with 330 million people but social security and medicare are two things that we love as citizens because we pay into it like th that's why they're entitlement programs because you're paying into it you're giving the the government is taking your money and putting it away for you later. At a July 2006 meeting of the Southern Regional Conference of the National School Boards Association in Destin, Florida, Barkley lent credence to the idea of running for governor of Alabama, stating, quote, I'm serious. I'm serious. I got to get people to realize that the government, uh, my Chuck accent is just not. Ernie, listen, Ernie. It's just not what it, it's not what it used to be. I'm serious. I've got to get people to realize that the government is full of it. Republicans and Democrats want to want to argue over stuff that's not important, like gay marriage or the war in Iraq or illegal immigration. Meanwhile, all of these things are important. These are actually like hugely important issues, right? Like gay rights. I, back then, gay rights was um, different. But I, in this quote, he seems like, hey, just like. Let people do what they want to do. But let's get on with it. When I run, if I run, we're going to talk about the real issues like improving our schools, cleaning up our neighborhoods of drugs and crime, and making Alabama a better place for all people. It's just, you know, basic Republican or just like basically any political talking point. He's correct in the sense that, yeah, Republicans and Democrats argue over shit that is not important, but like gay marriage is important. Uh, foreign policy is hugely important, even though when you're governor, that's not really your concern because you're governing governing the state. So I understand why he would be disinterested in that. But it's still more or less like the principle of it. Um, you know, crime, drugs, this, that, whatever, making Alabama safe for everybody. I mean, something if you wanted to do with that, like gun control, you know, a lot of the red states are some of the more dangerous states in regards to firearm 
Dets, injuries, stuff like that. In September 2006, Barkley once again reiterated his desire to run for governor, noted, I can't run until 2024. I have to live there for seven years, so I'm looking for a house as we speak. In July of 07, he made a video declaring his support for Barack Obama in the 2008 presidential election. In September 2007, during a broadcast on Monday Night Football, Barkley announced that he bought a house in Alabama to satisfy residency requirements for a 2014 campaign for governor. In addition, Barkley declared himself as an independent and not a Democrat, and not a Democrat as Democrat as previously reported. The Republicans are full of it. The Democrats are a little are a little less full of it. This is still true to this day, unfortunately. Um. Like, yeah, except the adage now is Republicans are for bad things and Democrats are for no things. So that like that's honestly like really sad that the the political state of affairs in this country is still the same. In February of 08, Barkley announced that he would be running for governor of Alabama as an independent in 2014. On October 27, 2008, he officially announced his candidacy for governor in an interview with ESPN stating that he planned to run during 2024, yada, yada. Uh, Barkley supports LGBT rights. In 2006, he told Fox Sports, I'm a big advocate of gay marriage. If they want to get married, God bless them. This was, you know, very progressive, believe it or not, to be a guy from the South in the early 2000s and to openly be pro-gay marriage was, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, sentient during that point. I was like barely 10 years old, but like just looking back on it now, and how gay marriage didn't get legalized until 2014 in a lot of places. Or I think in the last place. Like, that is a huge thing to be pro. Like, being pro-gay marriage now, or being pro-gay, you know, being pro-gay rights back then is probably similar to being pro-trans rights now. Because it's so far removed from being, like, from being um, accepted in the mainstream, but you know, if they want to get married, God bless them. I respect it. Like what people choose to do in the privacy of their own home. I'm with it hundred percent. You can live your life how you want to live it. Just so long as you are not hurting anybody else. It's a very libertarian way of, it's a very libertarian way of thinking, which in some ways is, is great. But also like if you're, if you're a right leaning libertarian, it's, you know, it's fucking like super weird. But every time I hear the word conservative, it makes me sick to my stomach because they're really just fake Christians, as I call them. <laughs> That's all they are. I think they want to be judge and jury. Like, I'm for gay marriage. It's none of my business if gay people want to get married. I'm pro-choice. And I think these Christians, first of all, they're not supposed to judge other people, but they're the most hypocritical judge of people we have in the country, and it bugs the hell out of me. They act like they're Christians. They're not forgiving at all. Yeah, I mean, listen, the if you're Catholic— you know, Christian, whatever. What happened to everyone being created in God's in God's image? Like I thought, that's what it was. So if God creates someone who's gay, aren't you supposed to be cool with it? Like, isn't that isn't that how that works? During a 2011 Martin Luther King Jr. Day doubleheader on TNT, Barkley responded to a statement made by Dr. King's daughter Bernice by saying, "Quote: People try to make everything about black and white, but he talked about equality for every man, every woman." We have a thing going on right now, people discriminating against homosexuality in this country. I love the homosexual I love the homosexuality people. God bless the gay people. They're great people. Um in 2022 a, a video of surfaced of Barkley speaking at an event where he made comments vehemently in favor of the LGBT community. Quote, I will say this, if you're gay and transgender, 
I love you. And if anybody gives you shit, <laughs> gives you shit, you tell them Charles said fuck you. Yeah, like this is. I think that you know Chuck is is very good on social issues, just because like also when you are a person of color in the United States and you interact with another minority group, you do have that shared, you do have a shared level of oppression in the sense of you being a marginalized person in a largely white Christian society. So I think he is very empathetic towards people in that regard, which is all, which is a a huge thing, which is just, you know, it's, it's just very nice to see that. Like you see a whole lot of toxicity on the internet, but then also like, this is probably still how Barkley has his, his normie touch because, you know, gay rights have been accepted in the, in the mainstream. And it really is an extremist position to be anti gay rights at this point, just because it's, you know, it's been like gay marriage, although it's only been legal for like, you know, 10 years or so people have come around on it and are largely accepting of gay people. You know, they may be like, Oh, it's not for me, but you know, if it's, if it's what makes them happy, it's what makes them happy. Commenting on the Ferguson unrest, Barkley called the Ferguson looters scumbag, praised the police officers who work in black neighborhoods, and said that he dis- that he supports the decision made by the grand jury not to indict Darren Wilson in the Michael Brown shooting. Previously, Barkley expressed his agreement with the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the Trayvon Martin shooting, and this is where he loses me. In particular, with the Trayvon Martin shooting, because that was just like, how do you defend George fucking Zimmerman for what he did? It's just like, it's it's despicable. And this is why I feel that, you know, that Charles Barkley is not really going to be accepted by the CNN audience because he does have a lot of right-leaning viewpoints. He A, a huge piece of his worldview is right-leaning and if you're gonna try to be like the unbiased nonpartisan news network like he's not gonna fit he's not gonna fit in in 2014 when Barkley was asked about the rumor that Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson was accused for not being black enough on the radio show afternoons with Anthony and Rob Ellis he said unfortunately as I tell my white friends we as black people were never going to be successful not because of you white people but but because of other black people when you're black, you have to deal with so much crap in your life from other black people. It's a dirty, dark secret. I'm glad it's coming out. One of the reasons we're never going to be successful as a whole because of other black people. And for some reason, we are brainwashed to think if you're not a thug or an idiot, you're not black enough. If you go to school, make good grades, speak intelligent, don't break the law, you're not a good black person. And it's a dirty, dark secret. There are a lot of people who are unintelligent, who don't have success. I can't touch on this at all. I am a white dude. I am in no way, shape, or form. Um, remotely qualified to discuss, to further pontificate on this issue. So I will just let Chuck uh, deal with this and we will move on. Barkley has also been known as a critic of President Donald Trump from as early as his Republican nomination in the 2016 presidential election. (coughs) I think I just like swallowed a whole fucking coffee bean. Before Trump won the Republican primaries that year, Barkley stated his disgust towards the words and messages that Donald Trump was promoting through the presidential race. Now he's talking about um, Colin Kaepernick kneeling, yada, yada. 
In December 2017, Barkley mocked President Trump's tax bill, the infamous tax bill, in which was like 98% of the benefits went to the 1%. That tax bill, his landmark tax legislation that almost exclusively benefited wealthy people, uh, Barkley mocked that saying, quote, thank you, Republicans. I know I could always count on y'all to take care of us rich people, us one percenters. Sorry, poor people. I'm hoping for y'all, but y'all ain't got no chance. <laughs> He's just so correct. And also, like, you know, Democrats of late, or at least the modern Democratic Party, has not done anything in regards to altering the, cha- the tax bracket in any way. And anytime a Democrat speaks on it like AOC has they're effectively mocked or wanting to do something you know raising the top marginal tax rate to like 70 80 90 percent the same rate that it was at when FDR was president and through the 50s and the 60s which was the most like prolific time in the U.S. economy at least for the middle class like no one wants to even discuss that because oh my god the core health what about the corporations oh my god if we raise the tax rate Elon Musk will go back to South Africa good fuck Elon Musk but yeah I mean that's listen it's unfortunately he is super correct in that regard in response to the controversy generated by the removal of confederate monuments as highlighted in August 2017 unite the right rally in Charlottesville Virginia Barkley said I've never thought about those statues a day in my life. I think if you ask most black people, to be honest, they ain't thought a day in their life about those stupid statues. What we as black people need to do, we need to we need to worry about getting our education. We need to stop killing each other. We need to try to find a way to have more economic opportunity, economic opportunity and things like that. Those things are important and significant. You know, if I'm wasting time and energy, you know, I'm wasting time and energy if I'm screaming at a neo-Nazi man, quote, man, you've got to take the statue down. Again, can't speak on like, the black issues or can't speak on like being black in America, obviously, but like, I just don't fuck with statues in general. Really? I think, you know, if you are going to have a statue of somebody of a historical figure in the United States, it needs to be built in a way that is educational, like remarkably. So in by way of a museum or like a historical trail or something like that. You know, I went to Boston a couple of weeks ago and my fiance and I walked the Freedom Trail. And yeah, you know, there are statues of all these fucking of like talks a lot about the founding fathers and the founding fathers, of course, were not the greatest group of people. But, you know, you're given the entire story in an educational setting. I feel like a lot of statues are just meant to honor the person when that person may or may not have been honorable, i.e., you know, someone like Jefferson Davis or. Robert E. Lee. But admittedly, there are a tremendous amount of people all throughout the history of the United States who are, un- who are, at least in my opinion, undeserving of having statues. I mean, you know, you could obviously, George Washington led a huge thing in, you know, the revolution, um, Abraham Lincoln as well. FDR is another guy as well. Um, but really beyond that, a lot of these guys' cases are just kind of murky i mean fuck you could put up a statue for john brown i think that would be super sick i mean this guy that guy fucking killed slave owners barkley supported democrat doug jones in the 2011 united states special election in alabama during alabama's alabama alabama's senate election barkley noted that jones's competitor roy moore was a complete embarrassment to the state i yeah roy moore was a fucking creep 
In an interview with Brandon Scooby Robinson on the Scooby Radio podcast, Barkley said if he ruled the fur one day, he would get rid of both Republicans and, and, and Democrats because they're both awful. They fight like little kids all of the time. I think that Charles Barkley is an anarchist. And whenever I see people talk like that, I'm like, yeah, bro, you are definitely an anarchist. Like, I hate the, I also hate the two-party system. And I think, you know, Chuck is very clearly opposed to the two-party system as a lot of people are. And, you know, they are also made apolitical because of it, because of how feeble and how meaningless their vote feels. But the, the solution is not to just, to just get rid of them all entirely. Because the Democratic Party would still have a voter base if there were more, if there were other parties in, involved in the elections, very much like how literally every other fucking Western democracy has a multitude of parties. Because the Democratic Party does represent some block of the voting base, as does the Republican Party. So the solution is not abolition, but instead expansion, where you have a more robust like left-leaning party you have a more robust green party i mean fuck you could have like and you can have like a fucking anarcho-communist party for all i care like people are engaged in politics when they are able to vote for people who agree with them people whom they align themselves with and that is also particularly notable among like the younger generation because just speaking anecdotally a lot of the people that I talk to that around my age are just like very disenfranchised with everything because the system sucks. We are being set up to fail and there is no mainstream politician who is running for any meaningful office who's able to fix it. Like, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of great progressive leaders like Bernie Sanders, AOC, uh, Marianne Williamson, who's gearing up to run for president in 2024, but they are still under the umbrella of the Democratic Party, which fucking sucks because when you're operating in that, when you're operating in that group, you are basically beholden to what the what the donors want to do with you, which is why Bernie has never made a serious run for president, which is why Joe Biden will probably once again get the Democratic nominee. For president in 2024 a decision that i really fucking hope does not happen because i there needs to because i i can no longer function politically in this system it just makes me like fucking froth at the mouth i turn i feel like i turn into a feral beast when i talk about certain political issues because you you have the theory and the solution for it I mean, the solutions are literally across the Atlantic Ocean in countries like France and Germany and the Scandinavian countries as well. But there is no method of like seek of gaining control at this point. And, you know, I feel that Charles Barkley and a lot of people do feel that way. But just tying it back to the new show that Chuck is getting, I think this is going to flop horribly. I think that it's not going to be the... I don't think it's going to be the show that people think it's going to be because CNN is going to try to make it super corporate, I feel like, and Chuck does not function well in a super corporate setting. And that's why Inside the NBA is so is so much fun because it's just four friends hanging out. And that's also another thing, like the relationships, the interactions that they have on that show are organic because they're all friendly with one another. I mean, like, yeah, Shaq and Chuck trade shots all the time, but like, if you're not, you know, going back and forth with some of your boys, are they really your boys? 
Uh, yeah, I think this show is going to be horrible. I will say, I will not fucking watch it. Because why the fuck would I? Why the fuck would I do that? Why would I subject myself to that? Like, I don't want to hear. I don't watch CNN regularly. And I like Chuck, but I don't know if I like his politics enough to check in on them. I mean, maybe I'll watch bits and pieces just to see if it is entertaining. But I think that CNN, as a lot of corporate media does, I think they're just going to stifle the creativity and the <clears throat> and how genuine their commentators are. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and close this show off. This was a mighty long one. I didn't expect to talk about Charles Barkley for so long, but I'm verbose. I talk a lot. It's uh, probably one of my biggest flaws outside of my crippling anxiety. Um, so yeah, everything I'm associated with is down in the description box below. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. If you're watching any of the show on YouTube, subscribe, leave a like as well. Comment too. It helps the algorithm. If you're listening to this in audio form on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever, leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, follow the show. Um, and with that, I will catch you guys in the next one.